Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly conversation about current affairs in China. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. This week, we'll be looking at two of China's more prominent gadflies, the writer, blogger, and race car driver Han Han, recently shortlisted for Time's 100 Most Influential People list, and at Ai Weiwei, an artist and very vocal activist on a number of issues. We'll also look at official handling of the Wangjialing mine flood, in which 115 out of 153 workers trapped in a flooded mine shaft were spectacularly rescued, but the uh, aftermath wasn't quite as uh, well handled, perhaps, as it could have been. We're joined today by Will Moss, who writes the popular blog Image Thief at imagethief.com. Say hi, Will. Hi, Kaiser. Great to be back. And uh, also by Austin Ramsey, a reporter for Time Magazine here in their Beijing bureau. Uh, we're also going to be having some commentary from blogger Charlie Custer from China Geeks. Gadi Epstein, Beijing correspondent for Forbes magazine, will be checking in with us too with some stories about his early encounters with Han Han. He interviewed Han Han back in December of 2002 and has some amusing stories to share with us. Jeremy Goldcorn of Danway.org, a regular on this, is going to report in from South Africa and talk a little bit about political discourse in that country against which the likes of Han Han and Ai Weiwei look positively timid. Austin, Briefly, for our listeners who might not know who they are or have a lot of background uh, biographically about these guys, who, who is Han Han and who's Ai Weiwei? Han Han is a popular writer. As a teenager, he won a uh, writing contest, and then he uh, managed to fail all his other classes in high school. And so he, he dropped out and uh, wrote a book about the education system in China. Over the past few years, he's started a blog, which is one of the most popular in China. So like 300 million hits he's gotten so far, is that right? Well, we were discussing earlier, he's not as popular as the stock tip bloggers, but uh, but he's up there. Uh, and in his spare time, he, he races cars. Ai Weiwei is uh, a leading uh, visual artist. He's the son of Ai Qing, a poet who uh, was educated in France. And, and yeah, I, I see. I think um, it's worth noting he was actually standing on the rostrum with Mao in 1949, right? He was like the revolutionary poet at Yan'an and all that stuff. Yes, and uh, his his poems are are still studied in classrooms today. So he's 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 quite well known. Uh, in the early 60s, he was exiled to Xinjiang. So Weiwei spent his early years there, where his father cleaned toilets. After the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Weiwei came to Beijing. He was uh, in one of the first classes at uh, the Beijing Film Academy. He had a pretty lengthy sojourn in the States, is that correct? That's right. He uh, he went to the States. I think he was there for most of the 80s and came back in 93. And there he studied art. He worked as a photographer. Yeah, he was at Parsons, I think. Is that Right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, pretty impressive guy. I mean, and what, what you've, you've, you've met the guy before. Yes, so, I mean, yes. Describe him I mean, physically. I mean, he's an imposing character, isn't he? He is. He sort of looks like a Beijing cab driver. He's a very big guy. He's got a beard. 
he speaks in a surprisingly high-pitched voice, which is a little bit incongruous. But uh, yeah, uh, in English anyway. I mean, his English yes, is quite yes. good. His English voice again. I mean, it's is the disconnect there. I mean, uh, Not quite falsetto, uh, but uh, when you talk to him, you, you can sense that he you know he really thinks about it. He really ponders it, and he's a very uh, well-spoken and uh, thoughtful guy. Okay, so we had a pretty good uh, sense of who these two characters are. Uh, Will. It's been alleged that Han Han and Ai Weiwei are kind of the object of so much adulation and so much Western interest because they kind of fit preconceptions we have. When we look at these guys, are we sort of seeing the shadow of Tank Man somehow? Um, I wouldn't take it that far. And I don't want to, I think, overstate the influence these guys carry in the West. I think they are known to communities who are interested in what's happening in China. They're known to people like us. I think if you walk down the street and ask people, you know, in even San Francisco, where I'm from, you know, who's Han Han, who's Ai Weiwei, you get a lot of blank stares. You know, what's been interesting for me is looking at some of the, particularly the the criticism in the Chinese media that was directed, especially at Han Han after his nomination to the Time 100 Most Influential People. And, and, and one of the criticisms that was made pretty much across the board was that he's being successful because he sort of fits, you know, an archetype for what the Western media is looking for. Austin may want to give his own opinion on this, but I I think there may be some truth to that. You know, he in particular is almost sort of designed to be accessible to a Western audience. You know, he fits our mold of the sort of you know, pop culture commentator, brash, good-looking, adventurous, drives race cars, you know, oh, the gave, gave, gave the finger plan, to, the, yeah. to the educational institutions, very Bill Gates of him, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I think, you know, he's, he's kind of an easy sell for that reason. I don't want to jump what Charlie Custer is going to get into in a minute by too much, but I, I think Ai Weiwei is a very different animal, and I, I think perhaps in some ways kind of harder to sell to a mass audience as a symbol of, of, of something that's happening in, in China, at least at a broad level. Let's actually, you mentioned Charlie, let's, let's hear what Charlie has to say. I actually uh, spoke to him earlier and, and asked him what these guys have in terms of influence internationally and whether it's really fair to speak of the two of them in the same breath. Hi, this is Charlie Custer of China Geeks, uh, and I'd like to address a question that Kaiser posed about Han Han and Ai Weiwei. The two of these guys are often mentioned together in the Western press, and they're sort of branded as major Chinese dissidents, but I'm not sure that's really a valid connection to draw. I think there are some major differences between the two of them in terms of their approach, uh, in terms of their tone, and in terms of their influence both domestically and abroad. Now, Ai Weiwei is a political artist, but he's also a genuine activist who travels around China and around the world promoting his cause. Uh, for example, in 2009 and, and also in this year, he's been deeply involved with the Citizens Investigation Project, which is the investigation into the uh, children who died in poorly built schools during the May 12th earthquake in Sichuan. Now, Ai Weiwei has been arrested dozens of times. He has traveled all around Sichuan and all around the country in connection with this project. He went to participate in Tan Zoran's trial. And generally, he tries to involve himself not only in the political discourse on the Internet, but also in the political sphere of the real world. And I think in contrast to that, Han Han so far is pretty much just a blogger. He's a popular blogger, sure. Dissident blogger, maybe. But he's really not an activist. He doesn't do much more than write. And his writing has been mostly focused on specific issues of corruption rather than more broad calls to overhaul the system, at least until recently. Now, that's not to say that Ai Weiwei has a greater influence than Han Han, 
because he doesn't. Uh, in a contest of domestic influence, certainly Han Han wins hands down. His blog is read by millions of people, and while he's not doing anything other than write, we may well find that down the line, his writing has had a profound impact on the political thinking of a whole generation of urban Chinese. Now, Ai Weiwei, on the other hand, has a lot of international profile and international influence. His projects are reported on in the Western media, and, and certainly I'm as guilty of that on my blog as anyone. But he's not that well-known or well-liked in China for his political views. Uh, and part of the reason for that is, is the fact that he can be rather vulgar, frankly. People can agree with Han Han, who is calling for an end to corruption, or a stronger domestic media, or more freedoms. But the words that Ai Weiwei chooses tend to have less domestic appeal because he's so acerbic. For example, um, a, a project of his from last year was called Fuck Your Mother, Motherland. And it, and it was just... Uh, a number of different people saying that sentence over and over again. And that makes a great soundbite for a foreign reporter, but it doesn't play well domestically, even with people who might otherwise agree with what I has to say, right, and agree with his cause. Frankly, I'm not sure there's very much to connect the two of them other than their frustration with the government and the fact that they're big enough to have avoided any repercussions for the things that they say up until now, uh, at least in terms of long-term imprisonment. Uh, Ai Weiwei has said some nice things about Han Han in the past, but they definitely run in different circles, and their spheres of influence, I think, are very, very different. Anyway, thank you very much for having me on the show. Back to you, Kaiser. Charlie talked a bit about the relative domestic voice that these two individuals, I and Han Han, have. Would you agree with his comments that, that you know, Han Han is more, more influential domestically, whereas Ai Weiwei is, uh, has more of a, a voice internationally? Yes, I, I, I think uh, Han Han is, is, is definitely has a, a broader audience domestically. Han Han is, you know, he writes sort of fiction for young people. It's, it's, it's sure, just I mean, as, a, as a genre. He's a pop culture celebrity, Yeah, which, you know, is going to confer a huge amount of influence on him domestically, automatically, right. essentially. I don't know if you've either you have actually read his his writing I mean, aside from his blog. I assume that we've all read you know bits and pieces of his blog at least. But I, I spoke to a friend of mine, a woman named Cindy Carter, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Paper Republic, a group of translators here in, in in Beijing. She's an excellent translator and has done quite a bit of work in in Chinese fiction. And she was surprisingly positive on the guy. I mean, she she's you know quite picky, I think, about her in her literary tastes. But she said that the guy really has a terrific ear. Um, was surprisingly wise for somebody who was writing presumably when he was 15, 16, you know, for a book that he published at age 17, in his observations about adults, about the adult world around him. And uh, she thinks that, that what was true of him then is pretty much true of him now, that he, he has, you know, a, a real way with words, but also just has, has terrific observational skills. She was actually so enamored with him that she went out and bought all of his, the rest of his fiction works since. Interesting. Um, one of the questions I really want to talk to about is, are these guys unassailable? I mean, they seem to really kind of have avoided largely uh, any real crackdown. Now, that is not true in the case of Wei Wei. I mean, he's, he's gotten, you know, a crackdown on his damn head. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's actually had to go through what, if I understand correctly, brain surgery right. uh, for a blow sustained at the hands of some Chengdu police officers or something. But what, what, what is this? What's going on here? Are they, are they kind of untouchable? Have they been, why are they allowed to travel freely in the case of Weiwei? You know, I know he was just in New York at the Asia Society in March, uh, and he's back now. 
I wouldn't say they're unassailable. Um, they, I think they both have experienced repercussions, and they're probably in relation to the, the degree of their activism or the degree of their criticism of the government. So Weiwei, has, has, he's taken a, a stand on a pretty sensitive subject, which is the Sichuan schools that collapsed, sort of documenting the, the students who died in 2008 in the collapsed schools. Actually we, listing all of their names. And, and, right. and, and now on his, his Twitter, he sort of every day will have a, a list of the the students on their birthday, you know, so it's it's a very sensitive subject in China because it, you know, it, it goes beyond just sort of local officials in Sichuan. It, it you know, goes to, to people who are in, in Beijing now. And so it's, and, and there are repercussions. He was, when he was in uh, Chengdu last year for the trial of Tanzo Ren, he was hit upside the head by a cop. And as he, as he said, you know, he had, he had emergency surgery in Germany later. Han Han, as Charlie said, you know, he's not touching on very sensitive subjects. He'll talk about sort of uh, free speech on his blog or and things that are sort of much more acceptable to, to talk about. Forced relocation was one that he was pretty vocal about. Right. He's not getting to the, into the, the really sensitive stuff. So the repercussions for him, I think, are, are much less. You know, he, there was a magazine that he, uh, he tried to start recently, and, it, and then that's been blocked. And it, it seems that it's probable that that's in relation to fears about what would be in this magazine. but That wasn't the ostensible re- reason given, right? I mean, they didn't say specifically for content reasons, but... Right. Yeah, I, I mean, we, he's, we he's, he's complained a lot on his blog about the difficulties he's had starting that magazine. So, But it, I think part of it is that it's, that both Han Han and Ai Weiwei have constituencies that listen to them domestically and internationally, and so they can't just clamp down on them willy-nilly. I think it's a, it's a very calibrated thing on the on the part of the authorities. Will, how much further do you think these guys can actually push things? Well, that's the great unknowable question. You know, one of the one of the operating methods here is that often you don't know where the line is until you've stepped across it. And I think that's widely seen as, as something that's done consciously to keep people cautious about going too far. Of the two, I think Ai Weiwei is much, much closer. You know, his... Closer to the line. Closer to the line. His... his you know, like his risk profile is a completely different thing than than Han Han's. In I, I, you know, I think Han Han has has a great deal of influence. Uh, you know, he's got a huge voice. Uh, he has got a lot of talent, but in many ways, he's you know he's dissident light. You know, he's writing commentaries sure. <laughs> on a blog. They're kind of witty. His stuff gets blocked if it's too sensitive. But you know, he's not organizing anybody. You know, he's not having face-to-face confrontations with people. He's not sticking his nose physically into these most sensitive of topics. And these are things that Ai Weiwei is much more inclined yeah, to do. Yeah, Weiwei, for example, he's, he's organized uh, what an artist community that was having their uh, – was, was, was facing eviction from their, from their, their little squat. Uh, and, and even with his pedigree, you know, I, we had this discussion last week when Bill Bishop was on the show, and uh, this was kind of our, our, our after-party discussion. But, uh, you know, one of the conclusions we came to is there's always a line that can be crossed here, and there's certainly a line that Ai Weiwei can cross, um, regardless of how people overseas view him. When has that ever stopped the authorities here from taking a step they feel they need to take? Austin, help me understand what the source of this guy's rage is. I mean, uh, he came back in 93... It's it's not like everything was groovy between '93 and the time he finally started, you know, really getting active, which seems to have been in '07 or so. Uh, it, when did he suddenly turn into this completely pissed off man? Well, I, I think uh, the Sichuan earthquake had a big 
big part in that. And even it, it, before that, though, I mean, I think he was he was raging about you know the the misuses to which his design or the design he'd participated in for the bird's nest. Right, right. Early in '08, he was complaining about okay. the Olympics as being sort of a a, sh- a show and. You know, said he, he regretted participating, and it's kind of surprising that he got sucked into it at all. It seemed like it. Yeah, it seems sort of <laughs> unconventional. To, I mean, what, it's an it's an Olympic stadium, I and mean, what do you expect is going to be? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like a I monument should... to the state. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that this parade ground would be used. For uh, seriously, though, uh, you know, but the, the guy. Has has fallen absolutely in love with Twitter. I mean, I think all three of us are on Twitter, and, and I'm sure we all follow him. And uh, we see, you know, that this sort of uncharitably, you might call it a, a personality cult that's been developed around mm-hmm. the guy. I mean, the people on Twitter who follow him, they routinely refer to him as Aishin, you know, uh, the god I, uh, which is, uh, and I mean, he doesn't seem to have, have a lot of, you know, Humility about that, either necessarily. Well, um, you know, he wouldn't. He wouldn't be the first artist to have a, a little personality cult. Read anything <laughs> about Andy Warhol, um, but you know, thirty-three thousand people on Twitter is a lot. But but it ain't no Ashton Kutcher, right? No, it ain't I mean, Ashton, Ashton Kutcher. It's it's not even you know Robert Scoble. But hey, uh, I I wonder if he isn't being a little too cavalier in, in his use of Twitter. He was at an Asia Society talk last month, around the same time that I was in Texas for South by Southwest. And while he was in New York, you know, he was on a panel with Twitter founder and chairman Jack Dorsey and with uh, a, a friend of mine, Richard McManus from Read Write Web. And he said a lot of things about Twitter, but one of them was that the Chinese people worship you as a god. This is what he said to Jack Dorsey. I mean, the Chinese people also worship Ai Weiwei as a god, apparently. But uh, they worship you as a god because you've given Chinese people a place where they can speak freely. And, you know, certainly people do speak freely. They speak in uh, a little too freely. I worry, worry sometimes. There's sort of this techno-utopian belief at work as though they're clever enough to find VPNs or uh, proxy servers so they can get on Twitter. But of course, the, the old stodgy communist bureaucrats couldn't possibly be following them or listening to the conversations they're having. They're taking very few steps to protect themselves. I, I wonder what's going on here. Uh, well, the, the, the Twitter phenomenon in China is is, is pretty interesting because uh, it's, it's, it's blocked. And so... Uh, in many ways, it's sort of a self-selecting group. The, the people that choose to go on there. I was I was speaking with Xiao Chang of the the China Internet Project at Berkeley a couple of days ago, and he sort of described Twitter as almost sort of the uh, the virtual opposition party for China. It's a place where these these guys go and hang out, and you know, as you say, it's it's not as if it's secret. The habit of all sort of radicals, they like to drive out the moderates. <laughs> I've been I've been pretty viciously attacked there. That's the story of the internet. Yeah, I recall Times uh, China blogs comment section going in that direction <laughs> as well. Anyone who dares to put nuance on a story, well, I mean, it's, I think Will, it was you that once uh, said the immortal words. Said you know, if you're an activist. The enemy is nuance. I mean, you want everyone to see everything in black and white terms. Anyone who right. We in PR are great believers in a lack of nuance. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, Twitter is is interesting. I, I like what Austin said about the the Chinese audience that's on it being self-selecting for technological reasons. I, I think that's very very true. Um, you know, I, you know, the authorities aren't idiots. Um, Absolutely. And, and and they're not incompetent when it comes to handling these technologies, as I think we, we you know, we've all seen. Um, so I think it would be a mistake for the Chinese dissident community to get too comfortable with, you know, whatever world they're, they're creating there. You know, I, I think the other thing is, 
in terms of Ai Weiwei's use of Twitter or his infatuation with Twitter. You know, our, our friend uh, Andrew Lee, the author, uh, uh, sent us, uh, a few of us around recently, a very interesting article, which was a, a, a debate between Clay, uh, Shirky and Clay, Clay Shirky, the author, and Evgeny Moratov. Uh, and the curmudgeon. <laughs> the curmudgeon, indeed. And, and, but I thought it was very, very interesting. I thought Evgeny Moratov raised some very, very good points. About oh, the absolutely. Fact that virtually all of these technologies, uh, you know, they're dual purpose, and they serve the purpose of the state as well when they're, when they're effectively harnessed. So I, I think, like all of us, Ai Weiwei needs to be careful if he's being seduced by the lure of internet utopianism. Many people have been, have been burned by that mirage in the past. Uh, to Austin's point, though, I mean, it, uh, about the virtual, or Xiaoqiang's point about it being the, the virtual opposition. That's a very dangerous yeah, way it, for it, anybody it, to phrase it, by the way. It's, it's, it's interesting, though, to me. I, I, this morning, I was interviewed by uh, a, a couple of people who are doing a do- documentary on sort of the emergence of the public sphere in China on the internet. And they had talked to I, and I asked, you know, what they thought of the guy. We had a pretty candid conversation. And one of the interesting things that that the the director said to me was that she had asked him what he thought of his critics. And apparently he's completely oblivious to the fact that he has any. He was like, what critics? Where? Where where have you seen these critics? What have they said? Uh, No, I don't have any critics. I'm not aware of it. Which which just sort of makes me very worried that he really does live in this echo chamber on Twitter at this point. Well, again, he wouldn't be the only person in an echo chamber on the Internet. Absolutely. Or the the only artist or celebrity or public figure in an echo chamber. You know, we were talking about cult of personality a little bit earlier, and this is something that anybody who's a public figure starts to gather power in influence is at risk of, it could certainly happen to him. And I think being pure of motive does not make you immune to that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about Hanhan a little more, <laughs> enough about this, this, this bearded. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the like celebrities handsome. again. <laughs> uh, Hanhan has generated an awful lot of, of buzz around this, this, uh, this election. I mean, it's, it's a foregone conclusion now that he'll make it into the 100, and he'll probably be you know, quite, quite high up there in the top 10. Uh, amazing. And of course, the Koreans have, have rallied around Rain and the, and their their uh, figure skater as well. But um, there's also been a little bit of a backlash. I mean, I've seen a couple of articles. Talk a little bit about this. What what are what are they saying? What are people saying? You know, who oppose his having been nominated? It's 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 an interesting phenomenon. We've we've done the Time 100 for a few years. There's always you know, half a dozen or so people from from China who are on it, and it sort of gets a dutiful notice in the in the in the state press, and then. Uh, and then that's that. But uh, Han Han this year, uh, his sort of shortlisting has is, is caused a pretty surprising reaction. There's this phenomenon where there are stories that uh, people are sort of saying he's, he's, he's not influential, he's not significant. But, of course, the more you write that, the more you build. We call that PRing the problem. <laughs> it's good to know there's And it's, it's something that happens all the time here. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, 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 seems, it seems very uh, self-defeating. I mean, I, I think in a way, you know, we talked earlier about Han Han as sort of this seductive figure for the Western media. And I, I, I think that's, that's true. But he's also a seductive figure for the Chinese media. The, you know, everybody likes a good rebel story. And, you know, he goes very smart about cultivating his image. And um, Chinese reporters, they're very interested in his... And just the Han Han phenomena. And, and, and one of the things is, if you write a story about Han Han, you know, it can get a lot of attention. So last year, um, uh, we, we did a, a profile of Han Han. 
and uh, I think he was he was unhappy for some reason about something we said. Oh, I remember that. Um, Simon wrote that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Simon wrote it, and I think he he I think he described him as a metrosexual or something like that. And then it got translated in Chinese, and he was basically described Defeat. as a, tran- right. a transvestite. And, then, uh, and, and Raymond Joe of the China Daily picked that up and actually mocked that exact choice of words. <laughs> right. Raymond, actually, Daily. who's a good friend of mine and a huge fan. I mean, actually, Raymond thinks that this guy is re- the reincarnation of Lu Xun. I mean, he really he praises him to high heavens. That was a pretty emasculating column for, for you know, no, for you him know, to write about he, somebody. He intended really actually to write that. He intended that, that whole thing to be completely tongue-in-cheek. And he said that, you know, no one really understood his intent, and everyone thought it was just sort of an evisceration of, of having, myself included. My first read through that, I was like, what are you doing, Raymond? This is not like you. I mean, you come off as like this troglodyte. <laughs> yeah, if, if that wasn't his intention, he needs to have real buyer's remorse about that column, because I think everybody who read it, you, me, was like, whoa. Right, right. <laughs> it was. It was a sort of strange. We'll have Raymond on and have him talk about that at some point. But yeah, uh, please ask but, but, but yeah, I mean, it's he, he's you know he's he's an interesting character regardless of how you look at him. And I so I think he he makes for a good story. And you know, then his response to our profile became a story. And it's he's very good at uh, batting the ball. You know, sort of keeping keeping himself discussion of what he has to say sort of in the press and 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 discussed on online. Um, I recall I, I interviewed him. Um, Three years ago, I think it was, and uh, it was for a story on the sort of uh, the Baling Ho, the, the sort of the generation of, of young people who, who were born in the 80s. And uh, he was kind of a pain to interview. He, <laughs> he, uh, I've heard that. <laughs> he, he sort of, he denied that there was anything different about people that were born after 1980, you know, at a, at a point where China goes within a few, few short years to, from the Cultural Revolution to... Um, you know, to, to this, <laughs> yeah, to this, um, and uh, things like that sort of make him uh, seductive to write about because he's, you know, he's, he's sort of challenging all kinds of notions, and sometimes what he says is kind of off base, but he's not a flat character by any means. And uh, let's let's be honest, he's got sex appeal. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the first the first people to pick up on that sex appeal was a friend of ours, Gotti Epstein, who's uh, the Forbes uh, reporter here. Back when he was a correspondent at the Baltimore Sun, he interviewed him. It was in December of '02. And uh, he had a really interesting night, uh, the, the interview that went, went from about 12 midnight until 4 a.m. Let's see what Gotti has to say about that. When I think of Han Han and the phenomenon he is now, I wonder if he still believes what he told me when we first met. It was a Friday night after midnight in December 2002 at a Cantonese diner in central Beijing. Han Han was already a phenomenon then at 20 a best-selling author of books that were less novels than disjointed semi-fictional riffs loaded with snark and ridicule about the world that surrounded him as a teenager, mainly school, girls, consumerism, travel. He might venture into politics every now and then by temptation of the material before him, like a friend's father who was a judge. He sentenced people for bribery, Han wrote, and took bribes himself, by the way. But when I asked Han Han about what he wanted his writing to accomplish, he said he was willfully trying to avoid notions of larger significance. I've never thought about things like that, he said. I never associated my writing with some trend or China's reforms. That's other people's business. He went on, People ask me, what is the meaning of literature? What is the meaning of life? I don't waste my time thinking about these things. Han Han wasn't even sure then that he wanted to keep on writing. He had just bought a Mitsubishi race car and was far more eager to discuss his prospective racing career, which looked like a lark then but turned out, like pretty much anything Han Han has tried, to be rather successful. 
Critics debated about whether Han Han's writing would be remembered by history, or whether he would be considered a flash in the pan. He professed not to be bothered. Personally, he said, I don't really care whether it will count for something or not. I prefer that people remember my writing in their heart rather than in history books, because history is too political, especially in China. Somehow, whatever Han Han wants, he has always had both the popular judgment of fans and the political judgment of history. When I interviewed him, he had already sold two million non-pirated copies of his four books and was on his way to becoming a millionaire. He also had cause to stir in the literature department at Peking University, where professors debated the notion of admitting him, even though he hadn't taken the required entrance exam. They didn't let him in. Hudan University in Shanghai did offer him a spot, but Han Han went his own way, in a race car. After our interview was done, at 4 a.m., he asked if I wanted to go for a spin. Of course, I accepted. We raced along Chang'anjie, the avenue of eternal peace, the only car on the road. This was 2002, when that could still be true. And we zoomed by Mao's portrait, accelerating to more than 100 miles per hour. Then Han slammed on the brakes for a red traffic light. Han Han was a rebel, a counter-establishment figure, but he knew where the boundaries were. I suspect that's still true today. You know, I, I took the liberty of visiting the Time website and printing out the top 18 as, as the current voting stands uh-huh. before we <laughs> came down here. And, and I just think it would behoove the Chinese critics who are worried about Han Han's position on this list <laughs> to take a close look at who his peers are because I think they would see very, very quickly that he's really right where he belongs. <laughs> and maybe they would really want to rethink where, you know, uh, who, who else is, was on the list. Liu Xiaobo was on the list but also um, uh, Bo Xilai was on the list, right? Because who's up there at the top of the list? Well, there's two politicians on the top 18 that I can see, Amir Hussein Musavi and way down at 18, Barack Obama. And everybody else is like sports or pop culture celebrities. Lady Gaga, the figure skater from Korea, uh, Kim Yuna, Rain. Han Han is bookended by an American Idol contestant and Conan O'Brien. Okay, <laughs> So I- I'm thinking he fits right in, like Neil Patrick Harris. I mean, you know, so – they they just need to like look at this list for a minute and I think they'll see that, you know, it's not like he's like the lone sort of celebrity amidst sort of international heavyweights. Um, the other thing that really caught my eye, and this is a total non sequitur, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, number 200 at the very bottom, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> I'm sorry, now you can August move on. Company, truly August company. Uh, before we do, I wanted to thank uh, David Lancashire and the folks here at Pop-Up Chinese for hosting the site. Uh, for hosting the podcast and for letting us use their fine, fine studio here. And before we move on, one more, one more little thing. Uh, Jeremy Goldcorn has been spending uh, some time in, in his native land of South Africa. And once again, he comes to us with a postcard from there where he's going to be talking a little bit about the nature of political discourse there. As you probably know, uh, one of the leading uh, white supremacists from the bad old days of apartheid was uh, killed apparently now by his homosexual lover. There's all sorts of interesting stuff that's happening around that. We have activists now shouting basically death to Whitey. Uh, it, it all makes the, the, the whole scope of political criticism in China look positively mild here by comparison. Um, so maybe just, just uh, hear, hearing from him will, will help us to put things in perspective. This is Jeremy Goldcorn with a postcard from Africa recorded in Johannesburg, a city that is starting to tart itself up for the Football World Cup that kicks off next month. My postcard this week has only a tangential relationship with the main subject of this podcast, Han Han and Ai Weiwei. 
The two of them are amongst my favourite characters in the Chinese cultural and media scenes, and both of them are refreshingly anti-establishment and cynical. But being home in South Africa the last couple of weeks has reminded me how very vanilla, how very tame and very lame the state of political and cultural discussion remains in China. Currently setting the chattering classes abuzz in South Africa is Julius Malema, the leader of the Youth League of the ruling ANC party, who has been singing a song about killing white farmers and visiting Zimbabwe to learn from Robert Mugabe. Although Malema enjoys popular support in South Africa, the press is at his throat every day, and even our president, Jacob Zuma, has publicly rebuked him. This is the same President Zuma, whom the nation's most popular political cartoonist depicts with a shower growing out of his forehead because of remarks he once made about taking a shower to prevent contracting AIDS. Last weekend, while Julius Malema was still in Zimbabwe, a white farmer named Eugene Tablanche was killed in his farmhouse, and two black farm workers were arrested. Tablanche is not just any farmer. He was the leader of the AWB, a white, far-right-wing movement that tried to prevent the dismantling of apartheid in the early 1990s and uses a swastika-like symbol for its flag, and which subscribes to a version of Christianity that far-right-wing Americans would find familiar. In the days after the murder of Tablanche, the lawyer representing the two accused men said that one of them had been forcibly sodomized by Tablanche, and that the killing was self-defense. Apparently, a used condom was found at the scene of the killing. South Africa's newspapers are having a field day, tracking down anyone who can comment on the alleged gay second life of Eugene Tablanche, including a famous nudist from the 1980s named Beau Brummel. Other commentators are blaming the Tablanche murder on Julius Malema, accusing him of incitement to racial hatred. At the same time, reports are emerging that he is losing power within the ANC after the rebuke from President Zuma. I don't know how much more of this excitement and colour I can take. I think I'm looking forward to getting back to Beijing, where the foreign press and the China blogosphere are so easily set alight and a Twitter by Han Han's really rather mild blog posts and Ai Weiwei's really rather reasonable statements. This is Jeremy Goldcorn signing off from Johannesburg. Okay, at last, let's move on to our, our, our second and final topic for the podcast. On the morning of March 28th, workers in a mine shaft at the Wangjialing coal mine in Sanxi province broke through to an abandoned adjacent shaft that had been filled apparently with water. The resulting flood trapped 153 miners. Uh, there were 261 workers in the thing uh, in the first place. This was a, at a colliery. This was for coking coal. This was a mine for coking coal, and it wasn't an active mine yet. They were working at a, a sort of doubled schedule to try to finish the thing so it would go online in October. Apparently, some risks were taken, and uh, the, the results were tragic. Uh, however, eight days later, after the, the, the disaster, uh, 115 miners were pulled out of the mine alive, barely. There were all sorts of heroic stories about their survival, how they had uh, strapped themselves to the, uh, the walls of the mine by their belts so that they wouldn't drown while asleep. Uh, they were eating sawdust, pine bark. 
the disaster. Well, let's not walk through the actual uh, details of, of either the accident or the rescue, but focus instead on the optics of the whole thing, both from within China and internationally. Uh, what was the net impact on Beijing's image from this will? Um, from abroad, I don't really see it as making a very big difference. I'd be interested to hear Austin's uh, opinion on this. But, you know, I mean, there's a, a Chinese coal mine disaster every other week, you know. Uh, um, more often. I mean, th they have, in fact, been improving the industry. And, and in fact, the, the the fatality rates have gone down substantially in the last yeah, few years. It was years. over 9,000 in, in right. 2002. But these stories still happen so often that, you know, one of the depressing side effects, I think, is that it, it just doesn't make that big of an impression. Uh, as some of our listeners may know, of course, there was also a mine disaster in the U.S. Exactly. And it was happening recently. at the same time. It was the day of the rescue, in fact. I think Massey Energy, that was 20 people. That was uh, that was uh, the biggest mine disaster in the U.S. in over two decades, I think. Austin, and you actually wrote a piece on this. It was a tale of two mine disasters. Yeah, it, right? it, it was striking because it was, it was you know, both of these stories sort of went against expectations. Uh, in China, you, you, you read about an accident in a mine and you, you assume that Days later, there will there will be a, a story of X number dead, hmm. and, and another part of this is is that in recent years, I think the government has put a real focus on um, responding to disasters. So you saw that during the uh, the Sichuan earthquake, and previously when there was the snowstorm as well, snowstorm yeah. right. And I think it's sort of seen as a key part of legitimacy. They have to respond well, and so I think. We'll probably see it again with the uh, with the earthquake in Qinghai, you know, uh, on the news over the next few days. Right, to see. play up the contrast with Katrina and the response there. I, I mean, I actually think that's a very interesting point. And I think that attitude towards, you know, being able to motivate a, a, a disaster response effort very, very quickly really informed the local PR efforts. And I, I think we all saw what a very, very big deal the Chinese media made of the fact that it had been a successful effort. And this is sort of florid throwback language was used to describe, you know, the rescue efforts and the role of the party and how all elements of society gathered together to support the rescue. It was very, very interesting to see. I mean, I think internationally, not that big an impression, certainly because, you know, if, if you look at where attention was going in the U.S., it was going towards the U.S. mine disaster. Right. But here in China, it was a, you know, it was a, to an industry, to to a to a government that still struggles with um, a, a sort of stream of bad news and negative PR as a result of the mining industry. This was the fact that a successful rescue was motivated was a real gift, and I think they worked it maybe a little bit too hard actually, um, because they, they they really sort of took it over the top. The other thing that I thought was interesting is reading uh, the Wall Street Journal's China blog today, China Real Time report. Uh, they've taken note of some of the conspiracy theories that are now boiling up stuff that could come right out of the fringe American political blogs about maybe it was all staged, you know, to give the government something to, you know, something good to show off. I don't think any of us in the room here believes that. But it's interesting both to see the huge PR push that was undertaken at a government level as a result of the story. And then also the kind of how the response kind of shows the, where the level of trust is in terms of this kind of messaging communication. They, they obviously did care what the West thought about it. I mean, Xinhua, just days afterward, they ran a story that actually enumerated, you know, how the coverage was internationally on, on the mine rescue. But uh, maybe they didn't care enough. Uh, there were a lot of reports that came out after, especially um, uh, Harry Fawcett and Melissa Chan from, from Al Jazeera were on site at Wang Jialing uh, in the, I guess it was the day after, that was the, probably the Tuesday uh, and the Wednesday. 
And they didn't have very kind things to say. She had some amazing tweets from that experience. Yeah, I was, I was following that really. I mean, it was, it was absolutely fascinating uh, at how, I mean, it, it could be so, well, it looked like it was pretty bungled. The entire thing that they were sort of restaging little scenes for the cameras, and they were, of course, making it very difficult to access the families of of people who were still waiting to hear whether their their loved ones had been rescued. You know, on the one hand, it's good that the the government places so much importance on this. It's it's much better than than they absolutely. <laughs> but on the flip side, you know, these things are never pretty, and and there's and in the end, there's somewhere close to to forty miners who who died. Um, and, and the other aspect of it is mine safety doesn't really make for good television. You know, it's, it's not about rescues. I mean, when you get to the point where you have to have a rescue, you, you already have a big problem. That's right. It's more akin to, like, traffic safety. You know, it's, it's, it's boring stuff that takes uh, daily vigilance. And uh, China's, China's numbers have gone down significantly, but last year there were still 3,000-some-odd miners who, who died in, in this country. So that's... It's not a small in, number. In terms of Al Jazeera's experience, Melissa Chan's experience, and, and the response to this and sort of bungling an aspect of it, you know, I think that there are longstanding, deeply ingrained instincts here that affect how especially the foreign media is dealt with, particularly, you know, as you get away from the center and um, – you know, despite the fact that the government has PR'd the story in the Chinese media very, very hard, you know, there is a strong desire to maintain control of all aspects of the story, especially around a topic as sensitive as this. We all know that that's something that the government can largely, if not completely, largely do with the domestic media, um, cannot do with the foreign media. And, you know, even, you know, there, there's an aspect of, of the PRing of the rescue that's a bit of misdirection here, right? Focus on the positive story. Focus on the lives saved. To Austin's point, don't focus on the fact that the industry is still fraught with risk, you know, fraught with corruption, uh, incredibly dangerous and it still accounts for thousands of fatalities a year. So there's a little bit of that sort of pay no attention to the industry behind the curtain going on there. And, you know, that's something that they can manage to a degree with the local media. They can't manage with the foreign media. And these kinds of things have always happened or, have, I mean, have happened for a long time in terms of, uh, you know, uh, no matter how you know, how positive a story might seem, uh, you know, sort of letting these old instincts get in their way and, and uh, causing this kind of fallout. I think it'll be a long time before, if ever, before that vanishes. Mm -hmm. Austin, just now you were talking about how uh, the two mine disaster stories, uh, they both had sort of the capacity to surprise one, you know, you, you had only really talked about how uh, Wang Jialing Surprised you that there were survivors at all. What, what about the Upper Big Branch mine, the Massey Energy mine in West Virginia? What was... Well, but that was surprising because... You know, the, in, in the U.S. in recent years, there have been stories about miners trapped underground, and it it usually ends well. And uh, and the uh, the Massey Energy mine, it didn't. Uh, Twenty some odd miners died, biggest disaster in two decades, almost equaling the total number of miners who died in the U.S. last year. It's an indicator of how dangerous work is and how easy it is for regulators, for operators to slip up. There there are reports of hundreds of uh, citations for that mine um, last year. And so it was clear that the regulators were aware of a problem there, but, um, you know, still the mine operated and, and had, a, had a very deadly accident. 
It, it's tempting to think that uh, in the American mind, reading about these two things, it's just going to slip too comfortably into an existing narrative about American decline and the rise of China. China saves its miners. The American miners die. Will, do you think? I, I don't think there's a huge risk of that in this particular story, although I do think that that, that narrative is persisting in the U.S. far more than it should, actually. Right. That ridiculous uh, Pew poll or the... It does, the the poll itself wasn't ridiculous. Uh, I think it's forty four percent of of Americans now believe that that China is the the, the supreme economic power. Yeah, people need that. to people need to read up. But uh, <laughs> you know, I think you you can flip that around and come up with another misperception that would be sort of equally dangerous, which is you know look at those poor disaster ridden bastards over there, and and you know why you know we've got our stuff managed tight, mm. and I I think. You know, one of the things to come out of the Massey Energy story is is a little reminder that that we do have our own issues, and the American mining industry is better managed. Let's you know, there's two orders of magnitude of difference in terms of the annual fatality rates. Um, sure, but I mean, I, I wonder if I've never actually not, seen the statistic. I don't think there's two orders of magnitude difference in the size of the industry. Coal is very, very important in the United States, but. Uh, you have to be aware of falling into preconceptions on either side of that, either side of that story. Well, it's, it's clear that China is getting a lot of practice in managing catastrophe PR. Uh, unfortunately, this morning, as we, we all know, there was an earthquake in, in Qinghai. Uh, and uh, I, I, I imagine, Austin, you might be just heading out there anytime. anytime. It could, could be. It could be. I'm waiting to see. But, uh... I think we'll probably be talking about that uh, next week when we record our, our next podcast. I think that's about all that we have time for today. I'd really like to thank you both, Will and Austin, for, for joining me. And uh, thanks also to our remote contributors, to Jeremy and Charlie and to Gotti. And uh, we'll see you all next week on the Seneca Podcast. Mm-hmm.